Today on Physically Spiritual, I explore goodness and how knowing our goodness from God enables us to be fully alive. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I've been amazed by how much growing physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I'm captivated by discovering the truth about my body and how it reveals God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I've discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. Welcome to episode three of four of the series I'm calling the Macronutrients of the Soul. The series comes from the basic idea that we're designed to receive what God has made. God is one, true, good, and beautiful. These four ideas are the transcendentals. And everything God has created and everything God has revealed to us reflects his nature. So by receiving what the Lord has given to us, we feed ourselves as a whole person. Uh, This idea of macronutrients, an analogy from, from nutrition. A macronutrient is a carb, a fat, or a protein. And these are the basic things that our body needs to receive in order to function well. So what I'm saying is these characteristics of God that are present in God's works are the basic things that we need to receive as a whole person in order to function. Today, we're going to be talking about goodness. In the previous two episodes, we've talked about unity and truth. And in the next episode, I'll talk about beauty. So from the very beginning, when God created, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, it says, God looked at everything he had made and found it very good. God looked at everything he had made and found it very good. There's a couple things to note in this. One is everything he had made past tense and found it very good, meaning the, the goodness of things come from God's original design, the act of creation, the initiation, were not just good because of God's ongoing involvement in our life. Now, we wouldn't exist if God didn't remain in relationship with us. So that gaze of God that continuously proclaims us good is essential. But it's important that we were made good from the beginning. Our goodness, um, in a sense, isn't uh, contingent on anything after God's creation. There's two opposite errors we need to be in touch with in our modern society. Oftentimes, uh, these kind of errors come at two ends of an extreme. The first is that things in the world are neutral and that we give them goodness or badness based on how we use them. So the things in the world are neutral, meaning that, that the world is just made up of neutral stuff with no meaning. And based on how I choose to use it, it's either good or bad, whether it be uh, fossil fuels or it be a plant in nature or it be the ground under my feet or something I could eat. Right? All of these things are just neutral and they're only good or bad in reference to how I utilize them. The other opposite error states that everything that exists is good, but that no matter what we do with it, it's still good. Right, so this argument will go, would go something like this. Well, God created this botanical substance that happens to have mind-altering effects. It's a drug. So since God created this drug, and it's a good thing because it exists, that means I can use it, and that's a good thing. You see that there's a logical error there. There's a jump. And people often use this to justify their behavior. Well, this is something God made, so it's good, so I can use it this way. Well, God made it. Yes, it is good. Yes, that doesn't mean, therefore, you should smoke it. 
right? That doesn't imply that God intended that usage for it. Um, or we, we use this sometime with our own bodies. We think our body is a neutral thing that then we can use as we wish. Maybe in a relationship we handle we handle the sexual aspect of a relationship this way, right? Well, your body's good, my body's good. However, you want to use it as good. However, I want to use it as good as long as we consent. No matter what we do, it's good, right? There isn't a design to it. It doesn't have its own goodness that we discover and live into, right? It, it's only good in how we use it and how we assign it. You notice how, how both of these airs have a bit of truth in it. The first air that things are neutral and that we give them their goodness or badness based on their use of it, right? This, this bears a truth in that the way we use things is important. We're either using things in a way that, that gives God glory or not, that helps us to flourish or doesn't help us to flourish, that, that's being a steward of the world that God gave us or not being a steward of the world that God gave us, right? So that half of it's true. On the other hand, the second idea has a half truth in it too. That the things that God made are good. The things that God made are good. And where it gets it wrong is that, well, how we use it doesn't matter. That it remains good regardless of my intention, its effects, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So we need to, to hold those things in tension, both that everything that God made is good, but that also we need to use those things well in order for it to be good for us to use them. This is what the Catechism says in paragraph 294. It says, the glory of God consists in the realization of this manifestation and communication of his goodness for which the world was created. God made us to be his sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. For the glory of God is man fully alive. The glory of God is man fully alive. God's created to communicate his goodness. So this goodness that God recognized in creation isn't uh, a goodness exterior to him. Yeah, creation is separate from God, but God remains intimately involved. But the goodness of creation is a reflection of the divine nature. It isn't this new kind of good thing that God made separate from him. All right, paragraph 299 states, Because creation comes forth from God's goodness, it shares in that goodness. And God saw that it was good, very good. For God willed creation as a gift addressed to man, an inheritance destined for and entrusted to him. On many occasions, the church has had to defend the goodness of creation, including that of the physical world. Right? There are many heresies that don't just say that the world is neutral, but actually that the world is bad. The physical world is bad. Heresies like Manichaeism and Gnosticism, these, these thoughts made claims that the natural physical world was a bad thing and the supernatural spiritual world was a good thing. And the church has always defended God's creation as being a good. The physical world is being a good. Our bodies is being good. Our instincts is being good. All of these things are good. They're things that, that God has designed and brought forth uh, in our life either by a direct creation or by by a procession of, of causes that God orchestrated in his providence. Uh, paragraph 306. God is the sovereign master of his plan, but to carry it out, he also makes use of his creature's cooperation. This use is not a sign of weakness, 
but rather a token of Almighty God's greatness and goodness. For God grants his creatures not only their existence, but also the dignity of acting on their own, of being causes and principles for each other, and thus of cooperating in the accomplishment of his plan. Right? God doesn't just make us to be good and to sit there. You know, we're not a trophy on God's shelf. We're not a, a trinket that sort of clutters his creation. We're not just the sort of nice, cute little thing that God made and likes. We're designed to be our own agents. We have freedom. We can act. We're meant to be cooperators in God's plan. And God actually makes it so that his plan could be more profoundly manifested when we cooperate, when we love as he loves, when we act as he acts. But this freedom also brings in the possibility of badness, right? So if, if we're going to talk about goodness in this episode, we have to touch on the idea of evil because the existence of evil is probably the most compelling argument that God doesn't exist that people can make, right? The presence of evil is one of the most destructive forces in people's lives, the most wounding, whether it be trauma or grief uh, or physical damage, sickness, whether it be death itself, like all of these things, right? These experiences of evil in our life are ways that can alienate us from one another and from God and, and can testify to our hearts and minds that God doesn't exist if we don't have a foundational relationship of trust and if we're not well-formed. This is what the Catechism says about this in paragraph 284. It says, and this is talking about... um. God's creation, and then it's talking about uh, how God could potentially have brought us to be through a series of natural causes, what's sometimes called evolution. It says, the great interest, according to these studies, is strongly stimulated by a question of another order, which goes beyond the proper domain of the natural sciences. It is not only a question of knowing when and how the universe arose physically or when man appeared, but rather of discovering the meaning of such an origin. Is the universe governed by chance? blind fate, anonymous necessity, or by a transcendent, intelligent, and good being called God. And if the world does come from God's wisdom and goodness, why is there evil? Where does it come from? Who is responsible for it? And is there any liberation from it? this, This basic question of why is there evil? Why do we experience difficult things? Why do we why do people hurt us? Why are we capable of hurting other people? Why do people get killed? Why do people get sick? Um, all of these questions come to mind. And what we've already talked about, I think, is maybe the material cause or, or, or the, the foundational thing, right? We're free. In order to be free, we have to be able to say yes or no. We have to have self-determination, meaning which we can either act according to God's design or we cannot act according to God's design. We can either bring about God's plan and bless and steward the world that God has given us, or we cannot act according to God's plan and curse the world around us, bring about destruction of the world around us. We can either act according to God's plan and love and flourish and love others and help them to flourish, or we can act contrary to God's plan and sin, harm ourselves and harm other people, bring about more evil in the world and more death in the world. Our freedom necessitates the possibility of evil. But the catechism says it's not just that, right? It, it, it brings up an idea from our tradition that God would only allow evil if he were capable to bring a greater good out of it. God would only allow evil if he were able to bring a greater good out of it. 
The quintessential example of this is Adam and Eve's original sin, which then on the Easter Vigil Mass, we, we proclaim as a church, oh, happy fault, oh, happy fault, which won for us so great a Savior. Right? So God allowed the original sin only because he knew he could bring something greater out of it in the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't helpful if you're experiencing evil in your life, if you've lost a loved one, if you've had terrible things happen to you, if you've been deeply traumatized, right? Telling someone, well, God's got to let us be free and God's going to make something better come out of you. I mean, that's not helpful at all for anyone to hear. So I don't, I'm not proposing this uh, in a way to tell anyone how to feel or tell anyone what to think, but simply in an academic way to approach this topic, to say that evil is possible because of freedom and God allows it because he can potentially draw a greater good out of it. In Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12, there's a beautiful line. He says, do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Right? When, we're, when we're thinking about this, Sometimes we're tempted to conquer evil by evil, right? And this is kind of like how our governments operate. Like the way that we prevent nuclear war is by having more nuclear weapons, right? If we just have a nuclear counter deterrent, right? Maybe just no one needs nuclear weapons, right? Maybe if we loved someone and, uh, you know, I don't know, I'm not a politician, so I don't get to navigate these complex waters. But uh, but just to say, like, oftentimes we're, we're misguided and think, in order to overcome the evil in the world, we need to act like those doing the evil in order to overcome them, right? If we don't fund our operation the way they fund their operation, they're going to overcome us because we'll be poor. If we don't garner the same kind of influence and power they do, we're not going to overcome them because we won't have the same influence and power, right? If we're not willing to lie too, if we're not willing to play the game, we're not going to win. You know, and, and when we look at the Old Testament, in the form of how God led his people out from the forms of idolatry and slavery and, and an irreality, both in Babylon and Egypt, they're continuously challenged to rely on the Lord. Right? So throughout the scripture, the chosen people confront enemies that are stronger than them, that have chariots, that have horses, that have better weapons, that have bigger armies, that are better organized. And time and time again, whether or not they defeat the enemy, isn't contingent on whether or not they were able to get more chariots and horses or whether or not they got better weapons or more people. It was always contingent on their faithfulness to God. When they were faithful to God, even when they were outnumbered and outclassed and outgunned, they won. When they were not faithful to God, regardless of how big and powerful and strong they were, they would still lose. And this is trying to teach us a, a basic principle, that if in overcoming evil, we become evil, we lose even if we win. If to overcome evil, we become evil in our actions, we lose even if we win. Right? The, the, this game isn't fought out in the capturing of territory, the acquisition of wealth, power, or influence. The battle is really for the human heart. We're battling against powers and principalities whose goal is to bring us to the ultimate evil, to bring us to hell, as opposed to the ultimate good, which is heaven. Right, the ultimate good which undoes all evil. The ultimate good which in God's providence is, is the reason why any evil is allowed in the first place. That's eternal communion with God, the ultimate fulfillment of our being. 
right? Now, how do we accomplish this on a personal level in my own life? Like, how do I confront my own evil, my own sin, my own brokenness? The fact that I continue to do things that hurt ones I love, even when I don't want to anymore, even when I've tried not to, even when I've, uh, you know, read books to learn not to do it, when I've, uh, you know, continued to go to confession, when I've continued to go to communion, when I've sought counsel from others, and I still struggle. Like, how do we face this? Here's what uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians says, chapter 5. It says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for light produces every kind of goodness in righteousness and truth. Say this again. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for light produces every kind of goodness in righteousness and truth. Right, so this is important. Goodness doesn't produce light. Light produces goodness. Then goodness, I think, produces more light. But the light comes before the goodness. What's the light? Who are we children of? We're children of God. Right, God is God is the light. This is an analogy here, a spiritual analogy. You know, but it speaks deeply, deeply into the created world too because the whole created order, the whole ecosystem comes from the light of the sun, right? the light of the sun, the energy hitting the earth, that energy, uh, uh, that the complexification of the order of God's creation is contingent on the energy that's in the system. Without the energy, things die, right? The state of not having energy in your body is to be dead. Um, so life, complexity, goodness, things moving up the ladder, being towards God is contingent on light. And this is an analogy for God's grace. So live as children of the light, for light produces every kind of goodness, righteousness, and truth. Light produces order. So this means in order to be good, in order to do good, I I mean, in order to do good, we need to realize that we are good. We need to be a child of the light. In order to be a child of the light, we need to receive God's love. Right. So that, that basic word that God gave at the end of his creation the act of creation that started it all, he, he noticed that it was very good. In order to know that we're very good, you know that you're very good um, by receiving that from the people you're around. In a sense, that somebody telling you you're very good, seeing their face when they see you as very good, right? it's in that receiving that we realize it. We're nowhere delightful because we've been delighted in. We can't see ourselves except by with a mirror. And the mirror that reflects our goodness is the face of others. We can't see ourselves except with a mirror. And the mirror that reflects our goodness is the face of others. Right? The words they say, the look on their face, the reactions they have to us, the smile, the delight, the light of their eyes, their listening ears, right? All of this communicates goodness to us. And this is basic and fundamental in our childhood development and attachment theory. And I've talked about this in previous episodes when we talked about, um, we've had episodes on attachment theory. We've had episodes on Conrad Bars where this has come up. And we've had episodes on, um, on the topic of neurotheology and the thoughts of Dr. Jim Wilder where we've talked about this some. But in childhood development and attachment theory, um, the, the child forms a secure attachment by experiencing the reactions of their parents, right? The fact that the parent reacts to their signs, 
the light and the delight in their face, especially communicated by their eyes, their, their authentic smile, the tone of the parent's voice, right? It's all of these cues emanating from the face that communicate the child's goodness, their desirability, the fact that they can trust that they'll receive, the fact that, um, that they're good in and of themselves. The baby can't do anything to earn the parent's love. The baby doesn't help the parent at all. The baby, in fact, keeps the parent up late, depletes its nutrients, takes up its time, takes up its money, right? right? The, the baby in a real way is sort of a drain on the parents. But in spite of that, the parents are called to delight in the child. And that teaches something fundamental about our relationship with God, right? Similarly, like, while we don't tax God, God's not tired, he's all-powerful, you know, cre- keeping all creation in continual existence doesn't form a bead of sweat to form on God. And that's, that's like a metaphor because God doesn't have a body except Jesus's. But, um, but that love we experience as a child reflects the foundational relationship we have with God, right? That we don't offer anything that adds to God, to his glory, to his magnificence, to his goodness, yet he still delights in us. The chosen people would say to one another when they bless one another, may the light of God's face shine upon you. God comes to us and presents himself to us as a new father. Jesus' question, how could I climb back into my mother's womb and be born again? He says, if you're not born again, you do not have life within you. He talks about by baptism in the spirit, by water in the spirit. So by our baptism, we're, we're adopted as God's children. We're offered a new attachment a new experience of the delight of a father that restructures our life. And that's living the gospel. That's discipleship. So we could say that the language of our parents' bodies, the language of our parents' bodies is meant to echo the words of God in creation. The language of our parents' bodies is meant to echo God's words in creation. When God looks at creation and says it's very good, That's meant to be the language of parents' bodies toward their children. And then that's the language of God's body towards us. God's body both in the incarnation and the person of Jesus Christ, when he dies for us when we're still in our sin on the cross, right? Right, that that cruciform God on the cross, the language of that body is saying, you are very good. I do this for you not because you deserve it, not because you've earned it, not because you've done anything good for me, but because I love you. You're worth it because of your foundational goodness and my love for you. And then the language of God's body in the church, the body of Christ, particularly in the sacraments, particularly in the Eucharist, is that we are very good in receiving him into us and to becoming him by being consumed by him when we consume the sacramental species, you know, you know, the language of God's body. So, so it's this basic experience of our goodness that we receive from others. Hopefully, as, as I'm going through this macronutrients, macronutrients of the soul series, you see how these topics are building and interpenetrating, right? Because we started out with unity, our dependency, our need for relationships with others. And then we went into truth and how we need to receive the truth from others Well, but the truth that we receive from others foundationally is that we're good. 
So we both need to be in relationship. We need to receive the truth. And the truth that we need to receive is our goodness. Right? And then all of this is leading into uh, the final episode in the series, which is beauty. This has played out in my life in a lot of different ways. But uh, probably the, the most foundational story for me recently, which I've shared, um, I think, on the podcast before, but I was in seminary for four years. Uh, I thought God was calling me to priest. I want to be a priest. Um, but God called me out. And when I was leaving my spiritual director, um, you know, he, he, I had a really thick, I still have a really thick head, but he had to be really blunt with me sometimes. And, and one time he looked at me with a smile and he had these real penetrating eyes and he just said, Andrew, what's going to change you isn't when you fall in love with someone. It's when you realize somebody's falling in love with you. And I just kind of filed that away in my brain and, um, you know, I wasn't interested in anyone at the time. I just left because I felt God was calling me to discern marriage. And a couple years later, um, my wife, Brittany, and I started dating. And it's true. Like, I remember there are key moments in our dating when I either shared something about myself and she drew closer to me when I thought, man, like once she knows this about me, like she's not going to love me. Or, or moments when like, uh, like I'd made mistakes and she forgave me or, uh, just like experiencing the way that she would look at me when she wanted to spend time with me, even when we had spent so much time together. Uh, like all of these things preached about God's love to me in a way that I could have probably read theological texts for the rest of my life and not understood. Because all of these behaviors, the look on her face, the words she said, the touches, all of these said, you are good. You're lovable. And there is something in me that actually believed it, that I received that differently than I ever could have from a text, from a lecture, from watching a video or something like that. Uh, and, and it's this kind of experience that's transformational. It's this kind of experience that reformats our heart, reformats our mind, um, changes our ability to show up when we're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, when we're afraid, when we're stressed. In those moments when we're not primed to be our best selves and when we're not thinking logically, it's in those moments that we fall back on our foundational relationships of love. What do my people do? Who loves me? Who, who do I love? Right? Who, who, who am I a part of? What people am I a part of? Right? These, these are the kind of things that transform our behavior in those spaces. So if we're ever going to, as the scripture says, conquer evil with good, it begins with us allowing ourselves to receive the love of others, especially God, but God's love through others, and allowing that to penetrate deeply into our heart. So it's out of that foundational place of identity and attachment and love that we then spring off into the world to love others and to live a life that blesses the world around us. Thank you so much for listening to or watching Physically Spiritual. I'm so grateful for every moment you've given to this show. Please remember to subscribe, like, follow, and share the show. And if you want to support everything we're doing at Physically Spiritual or at Awaken Catholic, you can become a patron of the show at physicallyspiritual.com. To find anything I'm up to, head over to becominggift.com. God bless everyone.